0: Going to be speaking to Louise Sales, and uh, she's the emerging tech—sorry, I've got to say this carefully—the emerging tech project coordinator, because it's it's, um, a big, a big um, role with Friends of the Earth, and uh, she's going to be talking to us about the gene technology regulator having initiated a technical review of the gene technology regulations, of course, and what else. And uh, she's going to tell us a bit more about what all that means. So, Louise, are you on the phone
1: now? I am, yeah. Your technology's worked.
0: (laughs) It's always so exciting. It's like there's that moment of deep breath, and suddenly someone is actually here. So this is wonderful to to have you here.
1: Welcome. Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Yeah, it's a great pleasure. So I'm just wondering, Louise, to start with, can you just provide some background to the proposed amendments to the uh, gene technology regulations? I noticed that the last, uh, I mean, they were initiated around 2001, so this is kind of an update, so it would seem appropriate, you know, time to re-look at it. But can you just tell me a little bit about what's happening there?
1: Yeah, that's right. So basically, there's actually three current reviews that are going on um, of our gene technology scheme, but basically the crux of the matter is this is an attempt by the federal government to to deregulate a whole range of new genetic engineering techniques that are being referred to as gene editing. So CRISPR is probably the one that most people have heard of, but even then a lot of people haven't heard of that if you're not really following the technology space.
0: Well, they are fairly recent, aren't they? I mean, CRISPR, is it about five? When did it first come out? About five years ago or something? That's
1: right. The technology is only about five years old, which is why we find it incredible that the government's saying that the effects of using this technique are small and predictable because there's been absolutely no safety testing of any of the products of CRISPR. So, it's yeah, we we find it really quite an incredible move by the government to propose deregulating this technique.
0: So, can you just kind of take us back a minute so uh, what are what is the government actually proposing? Like what are so, the proposed amendments?
1: Yeah, so the proposed amendments um to the regulations are they're basically arguing that when these new and um, genetic engineering techniques are used to produce small changes to the genome, so that could be like deleting part of a gene or or a small addition, they won't be regulated, and their justification is that these that the effects are small and predictable. But actually, the reality is that all of these techniques are associated with what are called off-target effects, so as well as cutting the gene that you want to cut. They also cut, cut other genes elsewhere in the genome. And so unless these techniques are regulated, you're not, you're not going to find these effects. And the concern with these off-target effects is that they can re- potentially result in the production of novel toxins, allergens. And obviously, the products... Um, of these techniques are going to end up in our environment and our in our food chain. So we, we're finding these proposed changes deeply deeply concerning. Hmm.
2: What's the argument for? Why are they pushing for this legislation to take away the regulation?
1: Well, we're we're really concerned that basically the government's um, got a series of advisory groups on gene technology, and they're all completely stacked with scientists with vested interests. Um, so they're these are scientists that have got patents in their, these techniques. They're trying to Use these techniques to develop um, GM cereal crops um, and, and a whole raft of other um, applications. And they're arguing that the products that are produced by these techniques are indistinguishable, like the same um, traits could be produced through traditional breeding or um, other techniques that are currently allowed, like mutagenesis. And um, so that's basically bombarding. Um, so they're kind of radiation. Yeah. Uh, so so this, they're arguing they look the same, so they they should should be deregulated in the same way, which we think's a really shonky argument. I mean, basically, there's no question that these techniques are genetic engineering. They involve and um, tissue culture. Yeah, they're in vitro in vitro DNA techniques, and and they're quite clearly intended to be covered by the gene technology act because of the risks associated with them. Mm. So,
0: so they're kind of saying that oh, these are just minor things, and we really don't need to worry about it, and we don't need the same level of regulation as we need for other gemeti- genetically modified organisms. Is that are they just kind of playing it down?
1: Yeah, that's right. So they yeah they're just saying oh, there's nothing to see here, and they've also argued that it's it's all too hard. They're saying oh, these the the um, <laughs> oh. organisms produced oh. produced by these are indistinguishable um, from. From ones that are produced using traditional breeding for how are we going to enforce our regulation and well the the job of the regulators to come up with ways of enforcing their regulation not to just say oh it's all too hard and throw in the towel and I think what's really significant with these changes is that if, if they go ahead Australia is going to be the first country in the world to deregulate and um, these these techniques um which, yes. Yeah, it's really quite incredible. And it's important to bear in mind, it's, they're not just applying to, to to crops, it's also the legislation also applies to animals as well and microbes. So Australia could be the first country in the world to deregulate genetically modified animals, which seems incredible for a major exporting country.
0: So, So you're saying Australia could be getting another first here? Um, not a, not the kind of first we'd like to see. So, how does Australia's? Well, I mean, they are consulting, though, aren't they? They 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 have put it out for consultation. They have, but they've done
1: it in a very They they've done it over Christmas first. Yes, <laughs> I did note
0: that. Yes, always <laughs> always a good time not to get much response to your call for submissions. Yeah, and they've
1: also um. Oh, all the questions that they've put out for consultation are really technical. And it's, it's actually really, we actually feel really torn as far as do we actually engage our supporters to engage in this process? Cause we really think that the process is so shonky and corrupt. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. for, for example, they actually had, I'm, I'm up in Canberra at the moment and they had hearings on this on, on Monday and, um, and the the room was just completely full of industry. So organisations that are pursuing this technology, like CSRO, um, ANU, basically basic all the the GM crop scientists were there, along with yeah. Um, crop lobby groups well, and, and we feel like they've <laughs> just stacked this entire
0: process Well, I and you know, I know what you're saying because over the last few days I've been reading up on some of the material and it is confusing and it is really, it does take time to get your head around and, and actually just to come up with, you know, what are really the main concerns here, but one of the things I'd like to ask is how do you say Australia will be first? How does it see it with other Western industrialised countries? Like, what positions are they taking on this five-year-old technology, new technologies?
1: Yeah. So the only country that's actually made a decision so far is New Zealand, and they've actually said that they're going to regulate these new techniques as GMOs, um, and, uh, and that's, that's largely because are yeah, concerned
0: about. Sorry, no, no, I'm sorry. So, so, so they're going to regulate them as GMOs, and that's, that's right. what you're after. That's what you would hope for.
1: That's right. I mean, they quite clearly are um, genetic engineering techniques, and they should be regulated as such.
0: Yes. So, so other countries are kind of still in flux, still undecided.
1: That's right. So, Europe um, <laughs> actually, the French government referred it to the European Court of Justice. Wow. Um, And they're going to make a ruling next year um, as to whether yeah these techniques are covered under the current law in Europe. But obviously that might not be the end of the story. No. Um, Because because I mean Europe might decide okay if it's not covered under our current legislation we might implement new legislation to make sure that these techniques are captured. So it's not really clear what's going to happen in Europe. So we find it a bit incredible that the government's taken the position it has um, when our major trading. partners haven't yet haven't decided
0: whether they're going to regulate these techniques or not. Yes, I did notice um, that the European Network of Scientists for Social and Environmental Responsibility, um, and it's an international non-profit group of scientists and academics and physicians, uh, they talk about applying the precautionary principle, and also the burden of proof should be on proving that these things are safe. I I think that's generally the kind of things they're saying.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, over 60 um, international scientists have signed that statement calling for the regulation of these techniques. They basically concluded that these techniques pose the same risks as all the gene techniques and need to be assessed for safety. And if you actually look at our Gene Technology Act here, the the precautionary principle is actually actually incorporated into the Act. Um, And actually when they introduced the Act, um, in the second reading speech, they made it really clear that the definition of gene technology in the Act is deliberately cast very broad, in order that it it will incorporate new techniques like this. And so we think it's a real sleight of hand by the government to say, "Oh, yeah, we're going to yeah we're going to exclude these techniques from the regulation." Because when it was introduced, it's quite clear that these these kind of techniques were intended to be yeah, covered by the Act.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, just could you explain what the precautionary principle is, and in
1: case I haven't done it adequately? So the precautionary principle is basically when there, there's a, a risk of harm and action should be taken to, yeah, to basically ensure that, yeah, co- yeah, cost-effective action should be taken to ensure that no harm occurs. There's quite a few different definitions of precautionary yes. principle, but basically the a lack of evidence of harm shouldn't be used as a justification for not doing anything yes that's, yeah
0: yeah no so that's mm. what, yeah that's kind of what i understood about
1: yeah, it yeah so here they seem to be arguing that yeah a knowledge a knowledge gap we, we don't actually know what the potential harmful effects of this technology are because they're too new and the government's using that as a justification for for deregulating it, which is yeah appalling.
0: Yeah, which which should actually be the other other way around. That's
1: right. You should yeah you should regulate something until it can be proven to be safe, not deregulate it until it's proven to be harmful.
0: That's right. And so, if people are concerned and they want to take some action, what can they do?
1: Uh, we we'd urge people to to hop onto our website. So if you um yeah if you type in yeah no no um. Also, gmfree.org.au. That'll take you to sort of an online um, cyber action that we've created, um, which is targeting the the federal um, assistant health minister David Gillespie, who's got responsibility for this, um, and urging him to take action to intervene.
0: Right. So, so people can write to uh, write to the government and the government representatives. But i um, just just—you've described how complicated some of the languages around this. Um, Mm. So, you know, are there other options for people to just become better informed?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, certainly, yeah, our website, emergingtech.fo.org.au has got a whole load of information on this, hopefully accessible. I mean, I think the government's deliberately trying to make this issue impenetrable to stop the community um, getting outraged. Um, But I think it's really quite clear these new techniques are genetic engineering and and they should be regulated. And we've also got a right to know what's in our food. Um, And obviously, if these techniques are deregulated, there's going to be no way of um, keeping them out of our food. And and that's a major concern because it'll be really hard for, for example, the states that have got bans on GM crops to enforce those bans. It'll be hard for non-GM farmers to ensure that their seeds are non-GM and also for... For people like myself who want to avoid GM food, it'll be really hard for us to do that as well.
0: Yes, I mean, I had a, a friend who used to just before Easter, she would get everyone together, all her friends invited, to write letters to Amnesty from Amnesty International about political prisoners. So Christmas is a time when people do get together. Maybe people could organize a, a letter-writing um, meeting with their friends and uh, just get some information off. I think it's really worth looking into. And uh, some of the documents on your website are excellent. And I think it's just a matter of reading them, you know, maybe several times, and you begin to get your head around what's going on.
1: Yeah. Well, I hope so. I mean, we've tried to make our materials understandable. Yes. Yeah. But uh, you're right. Yeah, it's quite a yeah complicated issue. But oh, it, it, I mean, it really shouldn't be. Um. Yeah.
0: We these shouldn't be afraid. Quite clearly.
1: Yeah, these techniques are quite clearly engineering and, and need to be regulated, so we think it's really bizarre that the government's taken the position it has.
0: And when do submissions close? When do we have to get these submissions in by?
1: Um, well, there's the submissions to the technical review are, are not till February, um, but there's another review of the whole gene, gene technology scheme that's going on, and that submissions to that the first round of submissions are due by the 15th of December. Um, okay. But yeah, yeah.
0: Hop on our inf- on our
2: website for more more information. Great, and Antoinette, for a lazy person oh, for me. No, no, no
0: this, is, this is Louise. Was, oh, sorry, Louise. <laughs> no, pardon okay.
2: me. I was looking at a piece of paper. Um, <laughs> for a person like me who gets very muddled with lots of things in front of myself, um, is there any way or any space where this information can get distilled in layman's terms for people to be able to grapple onto it and start somewhere where they feel like they're on I don't know, a solid foundation of a little bit of understanding of the argument that's happening right now, rather than wading through very laboriously as Judith does. I know she's a great a great wader through a lot of content. Um Yeah,
1: well, we actually made yeah, we actually made a little um video um that's kind of it's only two minutes long. It's on our Facebook page, um which again is just um yeah, Friends of the Earth Australia Emerging Tech Project, you want to hop on there. And that hopefully explains the science and, and the concerns that we've got with the technology. Um, so I can send you a link a link to that if, that if that's helpful. Maybe you can stick it on the 3CR website as well.
2: Yeah, that'd be great. The 15th of December is really just around the corner. That's quite... That's
1: we've quite got
0: nothing night. else to do between now and then. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh gosh. So, so Louise,
0: thank you for getting up early. Thanks for coming on to 3CR this morning and um, yeah, and congratulations on the work you're doing. It's really important.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me on the program.
3: Green <laughs> Weekly, Weekly Radio. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. It's the leading source of local, national and international
4: news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements.
5: Tune in every Friday morning at 8am on 3CR.
2: And we are joined by a lovely crew here. There is three people representing Superfield, an exhibition that's coming up out at RMIT at the Design Hub. We're joined by Philip, Madeline and... Benoit. Benoit. I was going to say Boris. Pardon me, Benoit. (laughs) Um, Thank you all for making the trek in here um, to talk about Superfield. I was hoping... There's two of the curators in here and then there's Benoit who is... Um one of the nineteen artists who will be showing throughout the nearly two month long series yes. um that 's impressive um could you just tell us maybe Philip, yep. what superfield is and where it 's come from and the space that it
4: yeah, well, Superfield's a fairly ambitious audio-visual exhibition at the Design Hub Gallery. It's in two parts. The first part is, a, um, I guess, a, a multi-channel sound field that we've created using 40 loudspeakers embedded in the space. So some of them are set in concrete, some of them are in the walls, some of them are in the ceiling. And... Um, and most of them are covered by a, a kind of like a transparent scrim. So the idea is not to fetishize, fetishize that's the a gr- That's a great the te- word. The I technology. think we should all just pra-
0: practice it
3: right now. I, I, Fetish, I certainly have to. Fetishize. Yeah, I, I haven't yeah. got it yet. So it's not really
4: yeah. about the technology. We're using all, that, all the sound equipment to create an immersive, haptic um, you know, sound field, if you will, that's representative of the way we really experience sound in the field. Um, and the second component is a visual installation using multiple uh, screens. And the idea there is that the viewer walks through the, the exhibition installation to get various perspectives of the content, uh, the material being presented, whether that's the High Plains or Antarctic uh, Research Base, um, a Finnish uh, logging um, Uh, area, that kind of thing. So it's not about sitting down and experiencing things. It's more about physically engaging with these two distinct zones and the way that we uh, navigate normal everyday spaces. We use our ears, we use our bodies and we kind of... um, we have a kind of, again, a physical haptic encounter with, with the spaces that we inhabit.
2: Mm. When I was reading and trying to glean as much information as I could about Superfield without actually experiencing it myself, it sounded very much like, or it read very much like, you were trying to bring some of these environments in for people who may only ex- exist in an urban space to be able to experience these extremities or these environments that they may not have in- encountered themselves. Um
4: yeah and that that's 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 right and I think Ben can can talk somewhat to to what he was doing in the Australian Alps for instance but yeah the the thematic of the show is about wilderness areas most of which are inaccessible for most people and so as um, as 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 a curatorial team madeline and myself selected artists that are that are representing really quite fragile, endangered ecosystems predominantly, but also engaging with their communities uh, also. So often marginalised people, you know, rural people, Indigenous people as well, you know, people who are kind of outside our, you know, radar in some way, you know, obviously not so much for 3CR listeners, but ultimately, you know, who are the communities in the Australian Alps or within a kind of the Arctic region, for instance, as well, so that was one of the major kind of um, issues for us uh, curating the program. Mm.
2: And Madeline, I understand that this curatorial process and the whole show was put on behalf of the Bourgong Centre.
3: Oh, Bergong Centre. Bergong, part of me. Bergong Centre for <laughs> Sound Culture, yes. Um, and some of the art and some of the artists um, whose works are represented at in the exhibition have done residencies at Bogong Centre for Sound Culture. For example, Benoit, he's going to be um, presenting work in the Australian Alps and he's just finished a residency up there. He was up there just under a month engaging with the um, community. And I have to say, it was a very successful residency. Benoit's work, you know, he engaged with a wide variety of the, of the community. Um, from the um, some cattle, pe- some of the cattle families. Uh, I, f- I won't go into that because Ben. Y- yes, because be he'll speak about <laughs> yeah, it any minute yeah. now. Yeah, So, what is
2: there. the Bogong Centre?
3: The sound culture. Yeah. What, what is, is, is it? Yeah. It's a. Um, uh, it's a creative initiative. Um, Philip and myself co-founded it, and it was about. How it came about was really giving back, creating something, because we'd both experienced a lot of cultural um, residencies, and you know um, we were very fortunate in that, and we wanted to do something like that ourselves. And we found this old school, dilapidated school in Bogong Village, and that became Bogong Centre for Sound Culture. And over the years, uh, we established it in 2014... No, sorry, 2011. And over the years, we've hosted something like 60 um, artists doing residencies there. And we've also done um, three site-specific exhibitions you know, at the village itself and um, outside exhibitions such as Superfield. And also we had uh, an exhibition at the Coonahan Gallery... Showcasing the work of artists who had done residencies there, because it's about um, creating work that speaks to that. Inv- well, most a lot about that environment. So that's what we're interested in.
4: I might I might add that it's um, it's a form of philanthropy. It's completely mm. independent. It's not funded by any government agencies. So that gives us complete autonomy to support any project initiative or artists that we deem suitable, um, that kind of, uh, I guess, fit our, I guess, emphasis around community, ecology, wilderness areas, um, and, you know, not driven by things like, um, you know, profit or profile or anything like that. So it's it's like 3CR, it's completely independent in that sense, and that's mm. important to us as mm. well. It,
0: it sounds like a, a great project, really, and I'm really keen to hear uh, what Benoit's mm. experience has been. Um,
6: yeah. Uh, I didn't. Uh, I didn't understand the question you asked me. I,
0: I'm just asking you about uh, what you did.
6: Ah. Um. Uh But my issue was to to do uh, some composition about uh, different steps of uh, changing the valley. Yes. Uh, for example, in the Cuva Valley, uh, in in a valley next to the Cuva Valley, there was a gold rush. I was interested also by the um, by the issue of the first settlers and the meeting with the uh, first owners' perspective, uh, the Aboriginal people, about the dam construction and also the final step, wi- which is the, the ski resort.
0: Right. And uh, w- where exactly
3: were you? Uh,
6: I was in Bogong. Okay. In the Logong Centre. Do
3: you want to know where Bogong Village is? Okay, Bogong Village is 350 kilometres from um, Melbourne. It's halfway between um, Mount Beauty and Falls Creek. So hopefully that gives people, in northeast Victoria, that gives people an indication.
0: I think you could tell I'm a relative newcomer. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Explaining that. Probably everyone else knew. Yes. So that's where you were, Benoit. Yeah.
6: Yeah, and the idea was to do uh, mixing between, between electroacoustic composition, field recording, and documentary issue about uh, the recording on some people who could tell me some steps of the story of a valet. Right. It was not a documentary in the proper term, but it was mainly to record some voices that could evocate the different steps of a valet yes. and telling some short stories that could represent. Something in the history of the valley. Not uh, an, an historical lesson, but more short story you can take about one uh, anecdote or yeah. that can evocate uh, yeah, uh, different steps to, uh, of yeah. the valley. So a kind
0: of social history almost, but with a lot more, with sound and film and uh, yeah, very multi dimensional.
6: Mm, yeah, yeah. From according to me, everything is social and political, but right. I think I'm in the good <laughs> radio for telling that. But <laughs>
0: and what, were there any stories that stood out for you? Uh,
6: but there are, for example, there is a, um, a funny story. It's not, uh, it was uh, simply uh, about the relationship between the landscape and the people. Yes. And uh, according to where you come from, uh, the relationship uh, can really change. And for example, there's a very cute story about a woman who tells me uh, a story about the lyrebird. That is a bird uh, supposing to imitate the sounds. And there is a sort of legend in the valley. There was a man who was changing his chain for his car and suddenly the forest uh, say uh, f- uh, bl- bling bling fucking chain fucking chain it was a library that was imitating the, <laughs> the man oh,
0: wonderful and, and will we hear that if we go to the exhibition yeah
6: Yeah. no yeah.
2: <laughs> great <laughs> i'm on
0: my way <laughs> that sounds amazing
2: oh that's a beautiful insight into some things that you can walk into down at the design hub and that'll be part of the alpine um Exhibition or showing
4: Yeah, the Superfield's divided into four discrete programs So we kick off with, uh, uh, I guess, an investigation of the Australian Alps um, Starting, uh, I guess, the opening's tomorrow So people are obviously welcome to attend that from 5 o'clock at the Design Hub And then the program proper starts this Friday and runs to the 22nd RMIT has an institutional shutdown from that point for Christmas, New Year, so the galleries close closed for a few weeks going into January, oh. and then it opens again. <laughs> yes, that's a shame, really. Yeah, it opens yeah. again though with the great work uh, that Madeline and I have done uh, on the communities of, uh, or the community of Turkey Creek in the Kimberley, and they were devastated wow. by a flood in 2011 that destroyed there are settlement and so the work is an investigation of the effects of the flood and, um, and it's a really powerful work. And then we have a, a program on the Arctic and Antarctica and finally we finish with a, a more general program around wilderness areas throughout the world including Taiwan, Finland, Russia for mm. instance, a little bit off 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 track if you will.
2: Yeah. So for listeners out there who haven't gathered a lot of sounds and recorded a lot of these sounds, what are some of the ways that um, people in the exhibition and have captured these sounds?
4: Um, well, maybe Ben can, can talk to some of his um, techniques in, in the field.
2: Yeah, so Ben, how did you start to capture, say, um, these myths and play with the social-political out in that space?
6: Um, there, there are two things. There is things that really belongs to me and what were my feelings when I go to catch the sound. Uh, for example, one thing that is really, um, that speaks a lot about the valley, uh, there is a big, um, the dam industry is one of the, industry is one of the main industry. And we want to record sounds in the Bogong Valley. Uh, the main difficult thing is to find places where you don't have this water sound.
0: Oh yes, Because you have course. this white noise
6: uh, yes. uh, behind in the background. And so for me, it's a story of uh, recording sound and because sometimes you need really foreground sounds very sharp in order to do your rhythm, percussive sounds and so on. And if you have always this uh, white nose background, it can be really hard to do your mixing. So so for me, it's a a story that mm, speaks about the recording in in Bogong area.
3: I have to say something, tell a a quick funny story, and it is to do with recording sounds. So Benoit wanted to um, go up Mount Bogong, not the village, but actually Mount Bogong at night to get a recording of some insects. Oh, yes. So we hiked, like, I think we left the car park at 8.30, you know, so it was getting dusk, and we hiked not fully up to the top of the mountain, but I'd say at least halfway to get this reco- these, these So these re- were, were night insects? Yes, yes, mm. to get the... And it's a steep climb. It's a steep climb. And I thought, okay, well, I'm gonna, not going to miss out. I'm going to take my sound equipment as well. So I was lugging it. So we finally get there, probably, you know, to this point where Benoit wanted to do some recording of these insects. And I'm thinking, oh, I don't know about this. And we got there, and it was quiet. There was nothing, absolutely nothing. <laughs>
0: it sounds kind of very zen, like the yeah. sound of one hand or something like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> so
3: we sat there and Benoit, in his wisdom, had brought us a bottle of beer each. So we had, sat there on a log and had a bottle of beer listening to a slight wind rustle and that was it. That it was a really wonderful night. Yes, so I can g- imagine. Yeah, yeah, so that's like one of the stories isn't it. Yeah.
2: So, if people want to get along to this exhibition, um, they've got a relatively large period of time, Um, I'd recommend people to come in and out of the space, if possible. Um,
4: Yeah, it's an involving program. So, um, there are 19 artists uh, spread across the three-month exhibition. Uh, There's a number of video uh, and spatial works, as well as the sound works themselves, and Um, rather than overload someone with a lot of content uh, with one viewing or or, um, sitting, if you will, um, the idea is that people can come back in their own time and experience different parts of the world. And in, in total, there's probably somewhere around eight or nine hours of sound material to listen to and um, and some of those environments are extraordinary and they're also exemplars of contemporary sound art and field recording and in some instances soundscape composition and acoustic ecology practices. So it's ways that contemporary sound artists and artists in general are, are kind of involved in field work and revealing the complexity of different communities, different locations throughout the world and you don't have to be a a fan of experimental music or sound culture or video art I think it, I think the material itself transcends the form And mm-hmm. really invites people to use their imaginations And um, imagine what these places are like Most of which, uh, again, inaccessible to, to most of us you know, Very few mm-hmm. people get a chance to visit a lot of these places Like Antarctica and the Arctic and so forth So it's a chance to hear and see these places But in a very different way than, a, than what is often presented on TV Or in cinema and things like that um, so it's definitely worth the effort to to maybe pop in a couple of times through through the three month mm. exhibition.
0: And I'm so glad it is on for three months because <laughs> that does yes. really offer opportunities to, to come and go a few times. And mm. great for you know for you to invite us in to these amazing soundscapes. It really sounds terrific.
2: Mm. Thank you both, all of you. three of you. Pardon me, Benoit, <laughs> Madeleine, and Philip for coming in here, making the time to chat to us at three CR breakfast. It's been a pleasure and I'm looking forward to walking through that space. It's not far from 3CR Studios, yep. RMIT, um, yep. and so I'm looking forward to walking through the space and hearing the works that have come from individuals like yourself, Benoit and Madeline and Philip. Thank you very Thank much.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Got a lovely interview, Judith. You've been busy, busy bee.
0: Yeah, I was speaking to Antoinette Braybrook yesterday, and uh, she's the CEO of the Aboriginal Family Violence Prevention and Legal Service in Victoria, and a strong advocate for women's and Aboriginal women's rights in particular. And today, she's but you know she's speaking to us in a different capacity today. Uh, she's the co-chair of Change the Record and. Uh, Change the Record has just put out a report called Free to be Kids, so she'll tell us about that. But first of all, I wanted to know more about Change the Record, and that's when we started.
7: Change the Record is a coalition of Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal organisations. We've come together to call for national action and national leadership to reduce the over-imprisonment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people.
0: So that is your focus, to reduce the imprisonment?
7: It is, and also to address the uh, devastating rates of violence experienced by our people, most particularly our women and children. It's been 26 years since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in uh, custody, and the imprisonment rates of our people has doubled since that time. And also, you know, violence against our women and children is at crisis point. And so national leadership has been missing in all of that, and that's what Change the Record is pushing for.
0: So so what are some of the organizations involved in Change the Record?
7: So we've got organizations like MIND, the National Aboriginal Family Violence Prevention and Legal Services, the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Services, Amnesty, Oxfam, we've got Antar.
0: And some very impressive organizations. We've yeah, yeah who have done great work over the years. Yep. So a lot, lot of strength. A lot of strength. And last week, Change the Record released the report, Free to be Kids, which calls on the federal government to adopt uh, and report on an eight-point national plan of action to end abuse and over-representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children in prison. What prompted the report?
7: Nationally, our kids are being imprisoned at 26 times the rate of other children. No child belongs in prison and all of our children belong in their communities with their families. They need to be safe and they need to be thriving in their culture and their identity. Prisons are very harmful places and we have seen many reports um, which show the abuse of children in prisons throughout the country, and the Northern Territory Royal Commission highlighted all of that. It's time to take urgent action on this abuse of our children. We urgently need federal leadership on this issue.
0: You've reduced this, uh, and I think in a good way, to eight points that the government can take action on, whereas I knew that the report on the Royal Commission had something like, I don't know, 50 recommendations, like all important, I'm sure. But the eight-point plan that's provided in the um, free-to-be-kids report just seems very to the point to me.
7: We are standing strong on our eight-point plan, so much so that we have um, a lot of support from organisations on the ground. Last month, for example, um, over 100 organisations signed on to change the record statement calling for national action. Those organisations signed on because... We see the failure of our governments in the states and territory, and Free to be Kids, our national action plan outlines the solution. All we need now is the political will.
0: And, of course, it it covers more than just the Northern Territory you're looking at across the country. These changes need to be put in place. Number one is about supporting children and families to stay together. What would that support look like on the ground? Like, what are you wanting to see?
7: A good starting point is that um, there absolutely must be a greater investment into Aboriginal community-controlled organisations and early intervention prevention programs for our children. Many of our kids uh, in prison have had child protection involvement. Um, They've been removed from their families and communities. Family violence is a primary driver to the removal of our um, children. So we see that as a clear pathway into youth detention and adult incarceration. So what we need is those programs within communities that build on cultural strengths and identity. Those programs that um, can support Aboriginal women, mums, to keep their kids. You know, we see that as a way to break that vicious cycle of incarceration, child protection, addresses. The removal of our children, that will put a stop to them going on to detention and then adult incarceration. My organisation is calling for a child protection notification referral system to be put in place nationally so that as soon as a notification is made on an Aboriginal child that mum is referred immediately to an Aboriginal family violence prevention and legal service or another Aboriginal community-controlled organisation. She is supported rather than, you know, a punitive approach being taken.
0: I see. So, so getting in and supporting the family in that way. In point two, you've recommended raising the age of criminal responsibility to 14. And I understand, at least in Northern Territory, it's currently 10. You're saying 14. Why have you chosen that age as opposed to, say, 16?
7: Look, you're right. There are um, children as young as 10 being locked up, and that's really hard for me or for anyone to wrap their head around. These are just children. Right now, there are about 600 of our kids under 12 imprisoned around Australia. You know, getting back to the age, over 50 countries around the world have a minimum age of um, criminal responsibility at 14 or higher. The Northern Territory Royal Commission did recommend imprisonment of children under 14 in the most extreme circumstances. 14 is a benchmark. No child belongs in prison. We know that you know prisons are cold, they're harmful places. Prisons do affect a child's development.
0: Yes, and you have certainly in your report provided lots of uh, good references. I see. Also, you're not just asking for um, certain things to be done. You're asking also for monitoring and data collection about the impact of some of these changes. So, why is the um, monitoring and data collection so important? Yeah.
7: Look, there's no national consistent, uh, nationally consistent data about um, the youth justice system. There's many things that we don't know about our kids that are in prison. For example, kids with disabilities, kids with serious um, health issues, um, and they're not getting the support or care they require because their needs aren't being assessed. So, you know, that data collection will help identify those needs and those gaps.
0: Will also tell you whether the government is actually doing a good job in responding. Absolutely,
7: it will keep governments accountable.
0: Yeah. So that's important. And I notice your last point, point eight, uh, stresses the need to work through COAG to reform state and territory laws. This suggests a huge discrepancy in the law across Australia. How different are the laws?
7: The laws vary quite significantly from state to state, territory to territory. Western Australia, for example, has mandatory sentencing laws, which... um, you know, have contributed to the skyrocketing rates of uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children being locked up for minor offences. Other states like Queensland are putting kids into adult prison. You know, there's different oversight bodies um, in each of the state and territories. Um, some are more independent than others. And, you know, national leadership will help with consistency. It'll keep our kids safe, out of prison... In communities and with their families.
0: What response have you had so far to the Free to Be Kids report A- and to your eight-point plan? In fact,
7: the Commonwealth Government has said that it uh, that it will consider its response to the um, Northern Territory Royal Commission. And, you know, as I said earlier, urgent action is required. We do need that political will, the political courage, and we need it now.
0: Absolutely. Well, as I was reading through the eight points, I had the feeling, there was a feeling of familiarity about them. Like, I've heard these kinds of recommendations before.
7: We as Aboriginal people are not asking for anything new here. We're always calling for an investment into Aboriginal community-controlled organisations, early intervention prevention programs, you know, around the imprisonment and violence against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women the removal of Aboriginal children. We are very clear that we have the solution. We just need that investment.
0: And I, I have the feeling also that these solutions have been put up over and over again. And I, I do. You at the beginning of the interview, you talked about uh, the investigation into Aboriginal deaths in custody.
7: It has been 26 years since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. As I said at the start, the imprisonment of our people has doubled. Violence against our women is at crisis point. And we have, in that time, seen report after report, recommendation made after recommendation made. And still things are getting worse for our people. These calls are not new calls. They're calls that we make in many other reports and that have been made in many other reports outside of our communities as well.
2: It's time for action. Hello, that was, was your tune to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast.
0: And that was Antoinette Braybrook. And uh, it's time for action indeed. Uh, Antoinette is the co-chair of Change the Record and the CEO of the Aboriginal Family Violence Prevention and Legal Service in Victoria. And, you know, I, I remember reading the um, report of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, and at the back of that report there were all these case studies of particular individuals, people who died in custody, and it was heartbreaking. But what was so, you know, what was really interesting and sad was that in one person's life you could see every single policy the government had brought in and then reneged on, reflected. So like someone might have been involved in a training program for Aboriginal people, starting to get their act together, funding cut for that training program, that kind of thing. And those kinds of stories were, were repeated over and over in, in that in that report. You could see it, you know, you could follow it. It was a whole a map of, of failed policies, really. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it really is time to do something consistent, and to, to really, uh, you know, engage with Aboriginal communities is so much as token. And so I, I just uh, was quite moved, actually, <laughs> as you can probably hear, listening to Antoinette speak. And, and the you know, Aboriginal, Aboriginal Deaths in Custody Royal Commission is not the only one that we could talk about over these last years. And I think people are concerned yet again that the latest, um, you know, Royal Commission and, and the Inquiry into Protection and Detention of, of Children in the Northern Territory, which has made a plethora of recommendations. I mean, I got the report up, and it was just overwhelming. You know, there were there was a whole list of findings, which was huge, and then lists of recommendations. I, I think roughly maybe, I think maybe it was 53, but, you, you know, you know I've been wrong before, <laughs> Patty. So, but, you know, but anyway, it was huge.
2: We have Dr. Timothy Jones in the studio. We do. We well, haven't do quite got a theme song yet. <laughs> so if you have any ideas, um, please text in. Otherwise, in the next month, we will have something. It is Excellent. a promise. Yeah. So, Tim,
0: welcome. And I understand you're going to talk to us about the longer-term impact of marriage equality on the place of religion in Australian politics this morning.
5: Yeah, I thought I thought I would. Um Yeah.
0: But overnight, you might have thought of something else.
5: No, no, no. I'm 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 sticking sticking to my my guns. Okay, Um, good. (laughs) Speak. Uh, Yeah. So a lot of people have been uh, wondering about what what the significance of marriage equality is. It's been like a, I don't know, 13-year campaign in Australia and much longer internationally, and everyone. Uh, Lots of queers that I know seem to be feeling a little bit um, compelled to celebrate every little step, every, you know, the survey passing through the Senate part. It's like, oh, how many celebrations can we have? Well, I thought you
0: might have been partying for the last couple of weeks, actually. No, my liver can't do it anymore. Um,
5: (laughs) But uh, it seems to me that we're, uh, as an historian, it seems like this is actually quite an historic moment, not about marriage equality per se, but about uh, sexual politics in the uh, globally, actually, more generally. And I think um, one subset of that is the place of religion in politics in Australia. Um, if you think internationally, there's the big Me Too movement calling out people uh, who have been sexual, sexual harassers and sexual abusers uh, in workplaces, people abusing power. And the way in which people are able to call out sexual abuse, victims are able to take power, is historically unusual.
0: I see. Okay. Mm. Yeah. There are a
5: few moments... Where sexual politics and power relations changes like this. The 1950s was one, the 1880s was another, and and those moments. If anyone can, if anyone, no, I think you're going to
0: have to tell us because now I'm absolutely curious <laughs> what happened in the 1880s because it's totally relevant. Well, these were moments to my life. when
5: sex became really explicit, and the impacts were both negative and positive. So the 1880s, ah, yes, of ages, ages of consent went up, but there was also this massive panic about the white slave trade about prostitution. So there were good and bad things when when sex became explicit and people were talking about it for in a new way. Um, power relations changed, but not all not not uni-directionally. There were lots of different directions right. of change. Yeah. The 1950s was similar with McCarthyism in the US. Oh yes. Uh, attention to again att- attention to sexual offenses um, but also uh, cracking down on them.
0: Yes, and in my re- recollection is that McCarthy um, uh, you know would threaten people with exposure mm-hmm. if they were lots
5: of be- blackmail yeah uh, lots of particular um, particular attention to homosexuals in the cold war climate homosexuals yeah. as being potential spies and so on yeah so it seems like this is another moment when around the world sexual politics is is becoming really explicit again and some good things are happening um uh, but we, I think we don't want to just be blindly celebrating and want to think of a little bit more in a more fine-grained way about how things are changing, how relationships are changing, uh, and what we're doing. Um so that's a, that's a very big conversation, but I thought I'd just focus on one element of that in the, whatever three minutes that I've got left. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're watching the clock. <laughs> um, so it seems to me that in Australia, sexual politics for the last 50 years has been strongly shaped by the place of religious groups in the political system. Um, as Marion Maddox and some other scholars of religion in Australia have pointed out, religion has been overrepresented in the australian parliamentary system um, since the 1970s right and what's what's caused that uh, well it was a particular so 19 late 1960s or the 1970s we have the sexual revolution all oh, these calls yes. for liberation and conservatives mobilized in response to that right and uh, I'm writing a book about this at the moment. Oh, <laughs> the, new, the new Christian right movement emerges in completely as a response to the sexual revolution. Right. Um,
0: I, I understand, yes.
5: But they, begot, they, they were quite successful in Australia. They got into parliament. So Fred Nile... And they were not um, in parliament. No, they then. weren't in parliament before. So new groups get into parliament, but also people in, in a sort of in a leftist language, enterist movements, entered political parties, uh, particularly the Liberal Party. Uh, and Maddox's book, God Under Howard, shows explicitly how during the 90s, um, conservative Christians like Erica Betts, et cetera, um, almost at, in, the, in the 90s, they thought they were going to be able to turn the Liberal Party into a conservative Christian party. So there was this sort of real strong interest movement to try and um, change Australian politics according to Christian, their Christian values. Um, so through that sort of 1970s through to 1990s, um, Christians in separate parties, independents like Brian Haradine, um, and people going into the mainstream parties have been attempting, as a conscious strategy, to control politics. And they, what this, what the plebiscite shows, um, is that the number of Christians in Parliament, conservative Christians, vastly outweighs is vastly disproportionate to the number of Christians in the broader population.
0: So, so in a sense, they're not. I mean, they don't represent our democracy, if you want, or our community. Australia's
5: parliament doesn't represent the religious beliefs of the Australian people. Um, And the Conservatives were saying, oh, there's a silent majority, you know, the safe schools, all these political correct people are imposing their values. And I think they they thought that the plebiscite and the survey would be a successful delaying tactic for marriage equality, which it was. It did delay it for months. But what it has also done... Is shown that uh, they're way overrepresented. Sixty percent of people supported marriage equality. Um, you know, the, there's no silent majority in support of that. So I think one of the longer-term effects uh, of this moment in time, in terms of religion and Australian politics, is that that bubble of overrepresentation might be popped.
2: Wow. Is there a danger though, because of that similar scenario happening in the '70s with that sexual liberation? Could there also be a similar scenario happening? Um, with the groundswell and the small amount of support the Conservatives did have who are in power now sort of galvanise that support somehow and work with that through the survey and that conversation being out there and the minority now having a voice and a platform to talk it against. Could they... Well, the, well, is there a danger of that? Well, the
5: Conservative religious minority has had an inflated voice for, for decades. What I think is going to be most interesting and will be In the next little period is the Religious Protections Commission headed by Philip Ruddock, because that's going to be an explicit conversation about what is the place of religion in Australian secular society, what protections should it have, what protections does it currently have, um, and what yeah, and what protections do we want religious groups to have in the future? Um, And
0: and do you think that's also going to be kind of stacked by people kind of from right wing religious? Organizations,
5: or well, there are four people on the commission. Philip Ruddock, uh, the former Attorney General, is heading it, uh, and I think that was quite clever on the on the part of Turnbull. He's a conservative, uh, you know, quite respected by the people who need to be placated about their fears of um, religious freedoms being undermined. But then we've got the head of the Human Rights Commission, um, a federal judge, a father Frank Brennan, who's a Catholic lawyer and social justice. Advocate. Yes. So I think the majority of people on the commission are legal minds. Who I don't think I think, okay, I think so the law is relatively straightforward. So I don't think it's I don't think it's stacked.
0: Okay. Good. No. I just you know in the current times, one feels the need to ask such questions.
5: Yeah. So how what how it what the what the commission's findings are and how they're interpreted. I think that's the key focus. Is how are they how it's spun after the report comes out. Um. We'll, yes. I think that will shape how religion. Um, goes forward in Australian politics and society. Yeah. Well, we definitely got more than we bargained for in a good way, I think, especially from
2: a 3CR perspective with this postal survey and the conversation that's leading on from that. It's great to get an insight from you, Timothy. (laughs) Um, Dr Timothy, cultural historian here with us at 3CR, (laughs) giving us insight.
0: Yes, and and I know um, we have another interview coming up, but just before Tim goes, I think it's a very important question to ask him. And it's about Spider-Man.
5: Spider-Man. <laughs> yes. uh, what
0: can you tell us? I know you've had a, a visit from um, a, a close relative.
5: Yes, my nephew's staying with me at the moment. Um, and he has been telling my. I think my nephew is a secret pacifist. He's been secretly telling me that Spidey is a baddie oh. because, because he fights people.
0: Oh, I see. This well, might be breaking news for 3CR <laughs> listeners. But, but it's wonderful to see a budding pacifist in our studios and we can wave just through the glass. So that, that's terrific. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for bringing him in this morning. And thank you, Tim, for coming oh, in. My that, pleasure. That's been terrific. Yep. Great, great insight.
2: You're here on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast with Judith, Paddy, and we are joined by Nathan Beard, an emerging artist from Perth. Thanks for joining us, Nathan. No worries. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, It's so good to have you here. You're over here for a showing of your work. You travelled over here um, from Perth, which is quite a trek, really, um, (laughs) when we look at the big island that is Australia. So thank you. And you've just hung your work at the Blindside Gallery. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, that's right.
8: Um, So the exhibition opens tomorrow night. It's called Always There and All Apart. And it's uh, curated by Andy Butler.
2: Yeah, and I believe that the curation in the show is there to challenge or to critique whiteness in the artistic space in Australia and to ask questions of it and for the viewers to walk into there and have a think about how white often um, the artistic space is, the galleries and certain showings of art are and how they are, in a way curated. Yeah, that's right.
8: Um, I guess at the heart of the exhibition is this kind of provocation which is about the complexity of discussing race in an institutional space, which is so predominantly governed by white politics and expectations. So the idea of um, the conditional nature of an invitation to be part of an exhibition program because of diversity and all of those sorts of things. So um, what's really great is being part of an exhibition where there's a diverse range of artists practicing in different mediums, uh, sort of, representing uh, this sort of otherness in really sort of slippery and interesting ways um, that really sort of challenges that sort of status quo.
3: Mm,
2: I'm super excited to get down and have a look. I was lucky enough to go to university with Andy. It's a privileged place I came from, but it was a good place. Um, Andy was always swimming around with philosophy. Um, you could tell it was he was walking around the campus. He had a lot on his head and his heart. It was good to see. So I had a little look of your... Um, art that you sent through that was hanging could you just tell us what you've sh- what you're showing there
8: yeah so I guess I should explain a little bit about my practice um, I come from a Thai Australian background so a lot of my work deals with sort of interrogating this idea of how Thai I am like this idea of an inherited sense of thai and and um, finding ways of sort of Uh, expanding that and sort of um, really investigating the slipperiness of being able to uh, sit between two cultural spaces. And what I've been doing a lot recently is working with found photographies, uh, specifically found family portraits. So the work in this exhibition is an existing uh, diptych of photo decals uh, printed onto ceramics. And... um, They're two wedding portraits of uh, of my Thai aunt. Uh, The first to her Thai husband in a black and white film stock and then the second is a colour print of her marrying uh, her Australian husband, both of whom are deceased now. Uh, So the figures are, are blanked out by a gold coating technique, which means that the images are kind of sort of holographic. When you walk past them, they shimmer and you can pick up the details sort of embedded in the gold there. Um,
0: Th- I just have to say that, that sounds incredible
8: Yeah, they're really, um, they're really difficult to photograph So I definitely encourage people to go down and see them in person Because they, um, they're sort of I'm really interested in um, using seductive materials and processes and techniques That sort of uh, change with the way that you orient yourself around the work Um, just as a method of, I guess, sort of seducing visually.
0: Yeah, so so we have to look at different angles and uh, spend a bit of time around the photograph to fully appreciate.
8: Yeah, and it's sort of about um, enhancing sort of emotional haunting qualities of these found prints because there's this sort of really, um, I think, universal sense of nostalgia that comes across when you're looking at found prints and found photography. And so... Um, what I'm using is some um, visual references that come from an understanding that I have of uh, Thai is inherited through my mother um, and her sort of like domestic shrine spaces and then sort of applying those to found photographs and playing with material intervention, scale, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the new series of work for it is a triptych of um, found portraits of my mother and uh, two of her friends um, from the 70s in Thailand. And they're made up, so they've got, Giant hair, ready to go out in the town, but Wonderful. the faces are entirely obscured by um, a net of Swarovski crystals, and um, then on top of that, their uh, ambiguity of their smiles is sort of printed on top of acrylic. So you have this weird layering thing. They're really bizarre. There's some weird foreshortening that happens because you've got the detail of the lips floating above it, um, but it's the sort of like ambiguity of the facial expression which is um
2: really interesting for me oh, and, uh, it,
0: does. <laughs> it sounds terrific really it sounds
2: great it does I've got some of the images in front of me I'm lucky enough to see them as you say you can't quite get the shimmer as what you would when you get to go to the gallery and get to see your space um your works yeah but what you do get to see is just that I don't know it is the image the fact that you're playing with a family portrait is something I think that really brings that, I don't know, historical memory and lineage into life and makes it fluid again and sort of very much brings it into a present space. It's cool to see that you're playing with that and asking questions because I think a lot of people can view view their family portraits and view their family history through photos in different ways and it's, it's really good to see a playful nature and a critique nature. But you have had residencies in China, haven't you, recently? You've been pretty busy yeah. moving around the globe, taking your work away?
8: Yeah, so I was really fortunate to um, be selected for the 4A Centre for Contemporary Asian Art Beijing Studio Program. So every year they select three artists. And um, uh, Caroline Garcia is also in this exhibition at Blindside, was one of the other participating artists on the residency. Um, so for a month, uh, we got to hang out in Shen- the artist Shen Xiaomin Studio in Hwairo, uh which is pretty much Beijing. Um, yeah, and just really sort of challenged the way that we think and approach art and making. And
2: it was just really nice to be in that sort of inclusive atmosphere.
8: Yeah.
2: Beautiful. And so Blindside the Gallery is opening, is it tomorrow, isn't it? Thursday? Yeah, that's right, Thursday. Yeah, yeah. Um, And runs for in, until the 22nd of December, right up until Christmas, which is a time... Um, in Colonial Australia for a time of family and a time um, of buying lots of things. So it's interesting that gold's in there as well. Um, it's going to be a good space to look through and have a walk through. I recommend people getting down there. Are you going to be... How long are you in town in Melbourne for? I'll be here for the opening, definitely.
8: Um, I'm here until Saturday, and I highly recommend as well next week on the 14th is an artist talk with uh, two of the artists in the exhibition. So I think that
2: conversation will be very good to be a part of as well.
0: It sounds great.
2: Thank you so much for joining us, Nathan Beard. It's been a great pleasure to hear a little bit of words behind the work that we can get around and see down at the side. Thanks a lot. No worries. My pleasure. Beautiful. You've been tuned to 3CR Wednesday, break. Oh. <laughs>
1: oh, wobbly.
2: <laughs> wobbly old.
4: Hey, hey, maybe that's a good just moment to just say 3cr.org.au. If you want to donate to 3CR and help our wobbly studio, <laughs> get onto it. <laughs>